Think of your favorite film. I can remember the exact moment I fell in love with movies. Staring up at that big screen, watching the same movie over and over again. That movie changed not just the future of Hollywood, but the lives of an entire generation. Some of our greatest cinema challenges us to really confront our own hearts and the safety of that darkened theater. That's part of the purpose of filmmaking. As a viewer, it's about the attraction of spectacle and to get your heart racing. But what happens if a movie breaks these unwritten rules? It's not just okay to tell stories about characters we don't like. It's crucial. The thing that haunted me about this one movie is it held up a mirror. Violence in your mind is far more powerful than violence that's actually on screen. Then there's that legendary scene, the showstopper. I know it was you, Fredo. Storytelling cannot start at happily ever after. If you watch a movie enough times, you start to notice things. We want something that feels honest, something real. The human eye won't see it, but they'll feel it. This movie completely changed how I watch movies. Hello, this is Awards Daily's Clarence Moy here with Sasha Stone, the founder and chief content provider of AwardsDaily.com. Now, on Monday, producer David Fincher unveiled Voir exclusively on Netflix, and this is a series of visual essays exploring decades of cinema history and, in particular, our various intellectual and emotional reactions to film itself. Sasha's Summer of the Shark, a recounting of her first and repeated experiences with Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic Jaws, kicks off the series, and I am here with her today to dive into the episode. Sasha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really like the side awards daily. I, I read it all the time. <laughs> I check it every morning. It's so good. <laughs> all your writers are just amazing. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, I didn't pay Clarence to do this interview, you guys. Like, we're just doing it for fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. I'm actually a huge fan of uh, Summer of the Shark. I actually had a friend of mine, a neighbor, just before we started recording, ping me and said, have you seen this this Voir series on Netflix? And I said, why, yes, I have. In fact, the woman for which I write wrote and uh, narrated Summer of the Shark, he's like, wow, that one took me back. Oh, that's <laughs> nice to hear. So did he like yeah. the series? Is he into he it? He did. He did. He found it incredibly interesting and informative in a way that I think, um, you know, film scholars and things like that may not. I, I haven't decided whether or not film scholars will truly appreciate it because some of it is kind of like a an entry level film class almost. Mm -hmm. And just that it doesn't go super, super deep into cinema technique, but it talks more about character motivations and how you react to things and why things are there. And um, but, you know, for for him, with he, he has a very strong sense of of taste with film, and and I think he found a lot of things just really compelling, and um, it, it's it's probably he's probably the target audience for it actually. Oh, that's great! Yeah, that's the thing. Is like it it was definitely not intended to be something for film critics. That was definitely mm -hmm. the thing it, he didn't want it to be was um, about you know film criticism. It's not supposed to be that because there's already so much of it. Like we don't need more film criticism, but what, what seemed to be lacking or missing was this, you know, kind of appreciative, um, I don't know, sort of, uh, you know, a lot of people coming together to just talk about how much they love movies. You know, right. you see some of that on YouTube and 
in the early days of the blogs, they had a lot of film sites like that, like Ain't It Cool News, and you know where where mm. uh, Drew McWeenie, who's one of the guys that does one of these essays, got their start. And their their thing was definitely film adv- advocacy. The way you're approaching film, I mean, I think that you you kind of miss out on something. You know, if you're always watching with a critical eye, you, you know, you kind of forget the whole purpose of of watching movies. Yeah, I would actually throw our friend uh, Craig Kennedy in with that, too, because he wrote a lot of essays on his site at the time, whose name is completely escaping me. Living Um, in Cinema. Living in Cinema, yeah. He wrote a lot of essays about film, not necessarily reviews, but about, you know, about the experience of a film or the why a film works in certain ways. I think he, he, he tended to go deeper into a film than just whether or not it was good or bad. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there are writers who do that. I know Kim Morgan, who's one of the co-writers of um, Nightmare Alley. She, her writing, her film writing is, is very much along those lines. It's not criticism. It's, and that's, you know, that's why those are the kind of people that he wanted to be involved in his, in his, uh, in VAR. And it just so happens that I don't really write a lot of negative reviews because it just hasn't been my policy since I started I never wanted to to be the person that did harm to movies in the job that I decided for myself, which was writing about the Oscars, you know, it was sort of like, you know, I can analyze the race, but I want to keep criticizing movies to a minimum, you know, so that ended up working in my favor for this project because it it just gives the idea that all I do is really write in a nice way about movies. (laughs) (laughs) Save all the vitriol for the wine. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. For Twitter. (laughs) um you know it's also funny too that uh you're writing about jaws a film that premiered um maybe three weeks before i was born oh my god (laughs) i said that to my neighbor too and he's like oh (laughs) you hit me hard man that's rough bro that is rough You know, it's so funny, too, because I remembered seeing, you know, for listeners of this uh, who listen to this podcast who may be young, films used to be shown on television, you know, before they had Blu-ray or DVD or even VHS. You know, they used to show them on like ABC Night at the Movies or what Sunday Night at the Movies. Uh And that's where I first saw Jaws. And and I remember watching it like way too, like I was four or five or something like that, um, you know, in, in around the early 80s or late 70s. And I remembered... I remember being simultaneously incredibly bored and terrified. Incredibly bored because I was too young to appreciate what was going on between the the uh, you know the dialogue sequences, and yeah, then, of exactly. course terrified because of the you know just the the shark itself and all the those scenes. So that's the kind of amazing thing about before the eighties. The eighties really did change movies, but in the seventies, it was you, you do if you go back and watch a lot of these movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind mm-hmm. or Alien. You know, they have these long stretches that where nothing happens. You know, in Alien, it's like all the actions really towards the end, you know, the really scary stuff. And with Jaws, it's like, yeah, they have a few set pieces, but a lot of the movie is focused on character and, you know, building suspense. He's he's so good at that. Building mm-hmm. conflict, building suspense. But now, but then in the 80s, things changed. Movies changed. Everything, everyone thinks quick you know, and and to happen quickly in the first five minutes and then to just be, and then it just kept becoming more and more relentless. And now if you watch a movie like Aquaman or something like that, it's just the action is nonstop. Black Widow, you can't go like 10 minutes without an action sequence, you know? Right. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the availability of technology now where there's really no limit to what you can do um, through 
you know, modern technology in a film, whereas in something like Jaws, he couldn't show the shark very much because the shark was giant, mechanical, and it often didn't work. That's right. <laughs> and it just worked in his favor to do that. He didn't realize that's right. what it was doing. But it, it, there's so many, like, weird, happy accidents about Jaws where, you know, one one decision another way would have changed the whole movie. Um, they just got lucky. You know, they rolled right. the dice and they got lucky. So let's start diving, pun intended, right. into uh, into this episode. So um, my first question for you is, as I've looked at your 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 output, your your personal writing over the past couple of years, you tend to get more and more introspective, like you know, not only from Summer the Shark, but also from your podcast Gold Tripping. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that you think at this point in your life you are looking back at your your history, at your personal history, and, and sort of exploring that that narrative? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Weren't you like top of your class or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, that's interesting. Goldtripping.com, by the way, if anybody doesn't know about it. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I I spent. I've spent half, pretty much half my life online. I got online when I was about, uh, in 1993, 94. Um, I'd graduated, uh, UCLA and I got a scholarship to Columbia film school. And I went there for one semester, met a guy, dropped out, moved back to LA. Um, my whole life fell apart completely. And I basically just moved, you know, I evacuated real life and moved onto the internet. And back then, everybody thought it was crazy that anybody would be on the internet. They couldn't believe that you could talk to people in other countries and other cities. And But I found that the layer between living virtually and me was felt safe. You know, like I, I, I knew that I couldn't really be hurt that way. Of course, all of these years later, <laughs> it's now you see that, of course, you can be. But um, so, you know, I, I think over time the, the the time that I've been alive um, I think I'm I've got to a point where I, I think like I, I need to evolve out of online and back into the real world and I think before I do that I want to make sure that I you know write about everything that I've learned kind of keep a record of it because I'm part of a generation of, of internet um, immigrants not natives and a lot of kids and young people today they they have never known life without the internet they only know life with cell phones and the internet so they don't know that there was another time and another way to live and so i think older people you have an obligation to start telling stories and start laying down lessons for other people that follow you that's Mm. what i feel like like i want to when i'm on twitter and i see all these people writing about the oscars i just want to like help to be their teachers and to say, okay, you know, maybe this is a better way to do that. You know, this is what I've learned. And I don't know everything. And, and believe me, that lessons just fall on deaf ears most of the time. People don't want to hear it. But but I do feel this kind of, I think everybody does as you get older. You'll start to feel it too when you get a little bit older. I mean, you're already almost there. But when you, you know, a few more years, you'll start to feel like, you know, i got to start laying some stuff down because I'm not going to be here forever and I need to leave something behind. It's just part of one of our driving impulses you know the like we want to fall in love we want to have kids we want to you know create stuff we want to build stuff we want to have a legacy you know and you feel that as you're getting older you feel like i need to to make my mark somehow i need to leave a trace of me behind humans have been doing that forever right 
Um, yeah, I was going to say I'm going to find a cave wall somewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Scribble my, my words on there. <laughs> I was here. <laughs> Something as simple as that. But like, you know, that that is so essential to our experience as a species. You know, is what where have you been? What did you learn? I've been over across the mountain and I have found a lot of fresh water over there in that <laughs> pond. Come with me. Well, you know, so I mean, I think that's part of it. Um, I've, you know, I've learned a lot. I've, I've, a lot of the stuff that I used to want to conquer is kind of beha behind me now, you know, and that, that's happens too, as you get older, you just stop wanting to, uh, prove as much as you do when you're younger, you know, mm -hmm. Does that it reminds me of the end of Hamilton where they sing the song, who will tell your story. There's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, there's a line in the song about telling your story and then how, Eliza's the one that's left to tell the story of Alexander Hamilton. For some reason, that just that that popped in my head while you were talking about that. The orphanage. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> such a great um, scene. God, that's a, a really great musical. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, who will tell your story? You know, you can't rely on other people to tell it. When I, right. you know, if I didn't do this, there isn't a single person on Twitter. I don't think that would or, you know, in film Twitter and Oscar land that would want to tell my story, you know, or kind of give me credit for, for what I, how I started this mess of Oscar watching way back when, you know, I just don't think that they're prepared to, because they're not quite at the stage where they want to start, you know, parsing and, and laying stuff down. They're still in the need to prove it stage, you know? So they're in competition um, with me, but when they get older and they start to look at, the whole story of all this stuff that we do online, you know, they'll want to make sense of it and put it in context. Um, and I feel like I need to partly just because I feel compelled to do it. Um, but also because, you know, what else have I got? <laughs> <laughs> so how was it that you became involved in this project that would become for? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I've always been a really, um, kind of not devoted David Fincher fan, but somebody who appreciated his work a long time ago, starting back in the nineties, um, mm. came out of a film group that I used to, to write with when I first got online, we, we wrote about film and, and we would, you know, we would talk a lot about who are the greatest filmmakers. And, and even at that time, everybody in that group knew that David Fincher was one of the big up and comers. You know, he was so this is just at the beginning of his career. Right. So we're just talking like, you know, seven and fight club and the game. And but, you know, I knew enough about him to know that he was one of the top directors. So that when I started this Oscar site and Benjamin Button came up, I knew, oh, my God, it's David Fincher, you know. And so it was like the Oscars collided with this director that I knew was like one of the greats, like up there with potentially Hitchcock and Kubrick. So, you know, when, when that came up, I started to, you know, write about David Fincher and the Oscars. And, and every single person that works in film has an Oscar story. And it mm -hmm. starts with, you know, their, how they enter the Oscars, what, you know, what, what are their goals? What kind of movie, you know, do they launch with? And, and at that time, there's this kind of myth that certain directors make Oscar movies to win awards, right? So they step out of their comfort zone to make like a, a period piece, like for instance, The Age of Innocence, in order to, you know, win, an, win awards. And so there's a cynical approach to that where they kind of 
they don't judge the film on its merits. They just say, well, that's the Oscar movie that he's trying to win. And that's kind of what happened with David Fincher with Benjamin Button, which I didn't think was fair that year. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was up against Slumdog Millionaire. Nothing was going to beat that movie. Right. So, um, so, you know, then his, um, uh, I think the next David Fincher movie that came up was going to be Social Network. Is that right? Yeah, I guess that would be. Yes, there were. I don't think there was anything in 2009. Yeah. So the, and so I was, you know, was writing a lot about that. I, I don't think that he, he knew of me at that time. I think we did do one interview, but it, we weren't really, he didn't really know me and I didn't, you know, I obviously didn't know him, but I, I loved that movie and I, you know, I wrote about it so much that like most of the people who know me online back then and, and now even know me from, from writing just about the social network because I, I loved it so much and I wrote so much about it watched it like 30 times and I've seen it like hundreds of times since then, but one of my favorite <laughs> movies. Um, I, I remember the night um, I was on, I was up at like two o'clock in the morning waiting for your tweets on the DGA and who won the DGA <laughs> that night. And then I remember it was, uh, <laughs> it was King's speech. Oh, <laughs> like, that was oh so- that's one of those things I'll never forget. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. No, that was a bummer, man. And it's funny that, you know, that that's one of the ways that, that I certainly have changed. Is I, I, you know, I don't get as that emotionally invested anymore. But um, but that was hard to watch. Social Network win everything, win everything. And then even the Golden Globes. And then it came to the Producers Guild and it lost to King's Speech. Then it lost to the DGA, lost to the SAG, and then lost at the Oscars. That was rough. That was hard to to go through that year. Um, King's Speech is fine. It's a fine movie. It's a good movie. It's just not a great movie. But a lot of people love it. So what are you going to do? Right. Um, so anyway, then came the uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2011, I think. And that was um, that was really when I started to get to know David Fincher and actually Trent Reznor because of you know, a review that I had written about. That's still one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me. Trent Reznor followed me on Twitter and then tweeted my review for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. It was like, I got more traffic on that one review I think I've ever gotten on anything ever in my life on, on online. So that was a neat thing. I mean, that's the one thing about being around famous people is it's really, you know, it's really shocking to see like how much reach they have and how much power they have online. Um, it is it is sort of shocking when you're just kind of used to dealing with your own world and film Twitter and people like that, and then to see a celebrity, to get close to a celebrity, you see how much bigger it is. Um, but anyway, so apparently uh, when they made Dragon Tattoo, uh, David Fincher had gotten some um, d- sort of difficult treatment from the studio for casting Rooney Mara. And he and Rooney Mara had sort of gotten some bad press. People were um, kind of attacking them. And the studio was telling him he picked the wrong person for, for, the, uh, for the part. And when she got an Oscar nomination, to him, it was sort of like it was a vindication that, that his choice was right. And it helped him and in negotiations with, with the studios, um, you know, have validity in, in that he knew what he was doing because that she got an Oscar nomination. And, and he, I don't know that it's right or not, but he credited some of that with me and my coverage, you know? And so that was really how we, we ended up talking. He liked the way that I wrote about his movie 
And then he's he's been reading like my site ever since. Poor guy, <laughs> like what a nightmare. But um, he, he, you know, and so he would just say, you know, want to have one, you know, the first time I met him, he's like, you know, we could have we could just talk about movies, you know, every every so often. And he apparently, you know, does that with some people that you know he they they kind of have this like salon, if you will, of like people who talk about movies and. Um, technology and, and, you know, film evolution and the internet and all that stuff. And so, you know, I just meet with him a couple times a year. That was 2011. So that's almost 10 years ago, right? That's how long I've been talking to David Fincher about movies. Like, so you can imagine the conversations that we've had over the years. Um, they're right. usually like three hour long conversations. And, um, and, you know, he doesn't like to talk about his work at all, uh, ever. So I never got to really talk to him about his work, but he likes to talk about other movies and stuff. And, you know, over the years, one of the things that we've we've noticed or he's noticed certainly is that there's this sort of attitude about, you know, the rise of film criticism has become, you know, it's it's almost it's swallowed up almost everything else. Um, people right. love people who love movies decide they want to be film critics. Right. And so when you're a film critic, you're obligated to be critical. And not a film fan anymore, you know? And so, um, you know, his idea about this was, you know, just this idea of creating like a, you know, a show um, where people would kind of illustrate how much they love movies or, or a, the reason it's called Wars because it's a deeper look into movies, you know, it's a deeper look at movies and the art of film. And really it was also as a way to say, you know, Netflix isn't the enemy you know netflix isn't mm -hmm. gonna here to destroy movies netflix is in the business of loving movies and you know defending them and fighting for them and you know finding a place a safe haven for artists to flourish you know that's really their their thing so i think that they were they were all into it too but i mean that was like 2018 so it, it took a while to get this thing going so you're sitting with fincher over a cup of coffee let's say and uh, and you're talking about movies and Jaws comes up. Is this where the impetus came for Summer of the Shark? Is that where, you know, did you all of a sudden have a mutual admiration and love for Jaws? And that's sort of where the, the spark came for creating Summer of the Shark? Um, well, he, we talk about Jaws a lot. Um, he's the one that used the term the Summer of the Shark. I don't know if other people have, but when he, he would talk about Jaws, he would only call it the Summer of the Shark because that's kind of how he talks. He doesn't say like Jaws. He says the Summer of the Shark, and then you know <laughs> what that means, you know. Um, David Fincher was a, you know, like me, he was a total movie nerd. He was like a, a total Star Wars nerd, you know, Jaws nerd. Everybody was at that time. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I think he said maybe to the effect of it is one of the five best you know films of all time like i think he puts it up there in the pantheon but that's not how it became one of the essays basically um when we started the project and you know i kind of gave him a list of people to the, to consider you know for it and mm -hmm. he picked the people that he knew that he liked and eventually we got a group of people and then we had to start our pitches and we all pitched our ideas of what we thought our essays would be. I pitched maybe 15 or 20 ideas 
And literally half of them were David Fincher movies. (laughs) (laughs) Which he he immediately said no, no, no. Crossed all those off immediately. (laughs) So um, wouldn't let me do that. But And then he liked this one. This was actually called, the original headline for it was Girls Can Be Movie Nerds Too. And it was literally a paragraph. It was like all about going to the, you know, how, uh, I mean, it's just so funny because so much changed in the last few years, you know, in 2020, so much changed and the way people talk about women changed, the way they make, put women in movies changed, everything's changed. But back then it was like, you know, we were still coming out of that era of, you know, uh, you know, before they, they made Star Wars have a female lead, you know, stuff like that. Like it was, it was very much a male oriented, um, genre movies just basically all movie nerd movies like blockbusters were all designed for men and boys and i knew that because when i my daughter for 20 years i took her to the movies starting when she was um six months old and and there wasn't there weren't many movies where they had a female at the center they were all about one special boy you know and the woman was always the side character and you know it just it wasn't supposed to be like an angry screed against fanboys it was just supposed to be in a you know it was just supposed to say that like, you know, girls were really there too. Like we loved Jaws too. We were movie nerds too, even though Hollywood didn't really see us that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was, that's how that started. But the guy who directed it, David Pryor also had input because he's the director. So David Fincher had probably the first impulse of, I like this, but then he showed it to David Pryor, which one do you want to direct? And he picked that one because he loves Jaws as much, if not more than I do. Yeah, and I've I've talked to you about this before, but there's so many beautiful shots that that Pryor creates for this piece that contain the characters that are playing you and your sister, but they're reminiscent of or you know callbacks to shots from Jaws. I'm thinking of the mm-hmm. the scene on the beach with the hippies playing guitar and smoking yeah. pot, and and then you know the 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 two girls running along the fence. I mean that is mm-hmm. you know, as the camera moves along. I mean it's it, it's just you know. Even to the point where um, young Sasha is sitting in the tub and and having the hand fake the uh, um, the fin in the bathtub, yeah. you know, just just so many beautiful callbacks. You can definitely tell that that uh, there's a great love for the piece. He and that's the one of the things that that you know David Pryor's not online. He's not on Twitter or anything, so I can't like you know focus on him but and i'm getting a lot of credit people are writing me because i am online and it's about me and stuff but really the summer the shark is is all him like all i really wanted to do because i couldn't get my voiceover right was to do it good enough that it could honor what i thought was beautiful filmmaking by him you know he mm-hmm. could have just done your typical reenactments that that uh, that you do in these kind of things but he really made it artful i thought um He's, he's filled it with Easter eggs and tributes to Spielberg in general. Like he loves Close Encounters too. And um, he's just a really, really good director and very observant. And, you know, anybody who loves Jaws watches that will see, you know, all those little references, especially. And it was just so fun because I got to go to the set to shoot when he shot all these scenes. And it was just so cool to see him reenact exactly the 4th of July I mean, not the 4th of July, but the Alex Kintner scene where, you know, you do the famous rag zoom and the, the person walking in and out of the water. It's just if you watch it closely, you'll see very, very specific references, like you say, callbacks, you know. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, obviously this is a memory piece. It's told from the perspective of the Sasha Stone character, let's say, um, which is obviously your memories. But your sister and your mother are also characters within it. And it does get into some some very personal scenes that happened around the time that you were seeing Jaws. Um, was this solely sought out to tell for independently from your, your perspective? Or did you kind of, you know, run this by your mother and your sister as well? Um. Well, initially, it wasn't going to include any of the dark stuff from my childhood. Um, and actually, that was David Fincher's doing. He just, you know, in the rewriting of it, he just said, you know, you need to go deeper. You need to go mm -hmm. deeper. Tell me really what was happening then. And um, I didn't really want to talk about it personally. Um, but the thing is, is I have a another sister and another brother. So there were four of us. And I think that if there's a conflict in this in any way, it's that they feel probably feel bad that they're not depicted in the movie, that it just makes it seem like there's only two girls and there are two more <laughs> um, of them. But they weren't they weren't Jaws. That's the reason they're not in there is because they would have to like hire and two more actors to be in the thing. But they weren't Jaws fanatics like me and my little sister were. They didn't go to the valley and spend all day in the movie theaters like we did you know they were off living their lives doing normal kid stuff um and i could have put that in there and in an earlier draft i did have it but you know they they really wanted to cut it down and save money so they ended up getting taken out of it but um i think that what they did was they fact-checked but the guy my stepdad is actually dead so um and my mom had to sign like a waiver that said that, you know, that this is all factually correct. And, um, you know, they were really careful about that because they didn't want anybody mm -hmm. to say, oh, that never happened, you know. Right. I mean, it's tough stuff, too. I mean, it's it's brief, but it's 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 impactful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tip of the iceberg on that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it was important to put it in there, you know, Um just because it really was about a time in our lives when these two things were happening at once. There was this incredibly violent man that was in our lives and Jaws was in the movies. And it was really a, a strong lesson for me, as you can see by how I've lived my life since then, of mm -hmm. having two different ways of living. One is the harsh realities of, of life and the other is opting out for fantasy um, of the sort of the safer world of the uh, of Jaws. And my little sister points out often that one of the things we were drawn to was what everybody would be drawn to, which is Chief Brody is such a wonderful father figure, you know? Right. And you, you really do get a sense of, I mean, the movie to me is really about him more than it is anything else. And I think that the reason that Jaws is so fun to watch, even when I show it to my daughter, like she loves her favorite scene is when Brody is too afraid to go out onto the bow of the boat and Hooper wants to take a picture and he's like, get out there. And he's like, no, <laughs> he's too afraid of the water. And he goes, why? And he's like, because I need to, I need some scale. Martin, would you just go down to the end of the bay? He's like, no, what for? <laughs> he's like afraid and he won't go. It's so cute. But like, that's, you know, he was just like a vulnerable, wonderful, really likable character. And the shark blows up at the end, you know? So it's like, that. that is so satisfying, I think, for anybody living through the 70s. Like, you have to think, like, what kind of movies were they watching before Jaws came along? Like, these are like, you know, Five Easy Pieces and <laughs> The Godfather. I mean, they're wonderful movies, but it's not like, it's a pretty morose scene. 
Um, and then Jaws comes along and boom, blows up the shark at the end. And it's just so satisfying. And everybody felt like, you know, they won the day. Um, and so I think that that was what kept us coming back. Sure. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's the heroes winning with with uh, without, you know, Michael Corleone shutting the door on, on uh, <laughs> Kay <laughs> or uh, killing his brother. <laughs> I know. <laughs> kill the bad guy, and the bad guy was a shark, and it wasn't a terrorist or exactly. something like that. It was a shark. <laughs> yeah, this irrational fear of this thing plaguing you, and and then Chief Brody, the guy who's afraid of the water, boom, blows up the shark. You know, like that. That that was really the template for all the blockbusters to follow of the like one special boy who overcomes his you know his personal obstacles to defeat evil, you know, and triumph. That that really started with that with Jaws. I don't know how irrational that fear is. I think uh, uh, sharks having fear of sharks is very healthy. <laughs> but sharks that, and snakes. <laughs> exactly. No, snakes are my snakes are my. Well. I hate snakes. Um, but why did it have to be snakes? Why did it have to be snakes? I hate snakes, Jacques. I hate them. <laughs> Show a little backbone, will you? But the the irrational part is like the the, the ocean. What could be underneath that? You know, right. Of course. Yes. That's why I don't like. The ocean. <laughs> and the funny thing about about Jaws the book, me either I know, about Jaws the book is is like it's so not like the movie. <laughs> it's yeah. really like the shark really is much more of a metaphor in the book. Um, mm -hmm. But it's funny because the book still sold. Like people just had had more capacity for complex stories back then than they do now. I think. So talk to me, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Talk to me about recording that voiceover with oh, yeah. David Fincher. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So I couldn't get the voiceover right. I mean, it was just a tragedy, man. I, I like did it with, <laughs> first I did it with David Pryor. I did it, sounded bad, did it again, sounded bad, came in, re-recorded parts that didn't work sounded bad came back in re-recorded parts that didn't work finally went back in did the whole thing over again thought we had it down still not good <laughs> you know because i think i showed you one with the with one of the earlier um, voiceovers but um and then you know it was just like well david Pryor was like okay well um i'm just gonna have to bring david fincher in here and he's gonna have to sit with you <laughs> to do it because we're just not getting it right and so I got like the coolest thing that ever happened to me in my life which was I got to sit with David Fincher for like nine hours recording this voiceover so it was it was really fun I mean it sounds so, like a nightmare but it was actually for me really really fun so hold on so so David Pryor has been working with you and then he says this is not working we're gonna have to bring in the big guns we're gonna have to bring in Fincher like what I think it was more like David Fincher said it wasn't working and okay um, and, and David Pryor said, well, we've done it so many times. I don't think there's any way we can get any different voiceover. <laughs> I felt so bad. I mean, I literally think at some point I was going to get fired for not being able to do that because I just, you know, it was hard for me because as you know, I do podcasts. I do stuff with my voice a lot. I was in, I was in acting. Like I don't have a problem with any of that, but I was, I was nervous about mm -hmm. this project and about the, the and David Pryor and David Fincher. I didn't want to do a bad job. So in a, in a sense, I felt like deer in the headlines. <laughs> and so I couldn't just relax and loosen up. And I couldn't tell you how many times, like just on my own, I would practice it and say, yeah, it sounds good, you know. 
But um, but I think it came out. I, I like it now. I think it, that it finally he finally helped me to get a good a good reading out of it. Yeah, it sounds great. And you know, for people who don't do podcasts or anything like that, I mean, it's incredibly difficult to look at a piece of written material that you you don't want to wing it because exactly. you don't want to go uh or uh. But it's difficult to look at a piece of written material and then to try to read it out loud and make it sound conversational. That that is a, that is an art form almost. It was, but it was also like nervous making just to be in the studio and have people around me and stuff. Like if it was just me and my own microphone, I think I would have had an easier time. But I was trying to give them what I thought they wanted, you know, mm -hmm. and it just takes practice. You know, eventually you get the, up the confidence because I don't think anybody else had as much trouble as I did on the show. You know, like I think that like Walter Chaw's, I think narration is very natural and sounds really good and drew sounds really good and taylor and tony like i don't think any of them had a hard time but for some reason i just couldn't couldn't do it man it was terrible so nine hours huh nine hours got the fincher treatment um <laughs> <laughs> So what does that nine hours look like? I mean, he just does, does he, you know, obviously he's not going to berate you, of course, but you know, no. does he, does he give you suggestions? Does he tell you to change tone? You know, what, what, what were some of those keys that he gave you to finally getting to that finished product? Um, well, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's really funny. David Fincher, a lot of people don't know that about him is that he's really, really funny. So a lot of it is just us laughing, David Pryor and me and him laughing at the things David Fincher would say. But, um, like one of the lines is, you know, Mikey, uh, ate pop rocks, drank soda and died when mm -hmm. his, and then David Fincher came up with chugged soda, but it was the way that he like would read the line before I would say it that made us all laugh so much because he said David Fincher would say it like, like it was the most serious thing he'd ever heard in his life. Like Mikey <laughs> ate pop rocks, chugged a soda and died when his stomach exploded. <laughs> like he did it like that. And so it's like just, the Robert Stack American. Yeah. And so yeah. just doing it that way would loosen me up and I would laugh and then I would be able to do it so that it sounded semi-normal. <laughs> so sad. I feel like such an idiot that it took so long, but like, so stuff like that, like he was, he's just really, he also knows he's, I'm fine. Guy's been making movies forever, right? He knows I was, you know, if you watch Gone Girl or Fight Club, um, they're, they're heavy on the voiceover you know fight club is almost all voiceover and and gone girl is a lot of it and so he knows exactly i think how to listen to for what he thinks sounds the best and so you know i think he really he did a good job in, in like for instance the line i looked down and there were boobs <laughs> to do that line like with him like he's like just say it like 50 times in a row i looked down and there were boobs 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 he's like <laughs> it's never going to be a question i was like okay <laughs> so it, I, somehow he got it all together yeah if it couldn't be summer of the shark maybe we'd have a subtitle or something like that but if it couldn't be summer of the shark call it boobs with an exclamation mark <laughs> boobs <laughs> the boobs of the summer <laughs> so while this was gestating in the past couple of months when Netflix was prepping to release this and it was starting to be um, publicized at the AFI Film Festival, I know you had personally talked about some anxiety over over having this out there. And any, any artist that creates something like this has that same anxiety. But how have the reactions been to this piece in particular? 
Well, I feel really lucky because, I mean, I'm, you know, I got to do Jaws, right? And so Jaws is a movie, obviously, that everybody loves. And so I've just been getting inundated with people <laughs> writing me, like on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on email. You know, it's it's so many that I, I almost want to collect them and put them in a little you know, a little video to just show all the cool letters that I've been getting because people have been, you know, writing me, oh, this was my story. You know, this is how, this is what my life was like. And you, you told it so well. And, and people were saying it made them cry and that they were moved by it. And that it made them remember the love of going to the movies. I mean, it's everything I could have hoped for, you know. That's and, awesome. And the weird little monsters never crawled out from under the rocks and came at me. I mean, they might still, but you know, so far, so good. <laughs> Fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it's very different. And I think in a great way than the other pieces of war in that this is an intensely personal story. It is, it is not, you know, that sort of film schoolish environment. It's, it's actually taking, talking about cinema in a way that is intensely personal to you. And I think that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think so, too. I think that was one of the things we wanted to do when we were trying to put it all together was, you know, how are we going to deliver this to people? Like, who's going to want to watch this? Who's going to care? You know, and and so we very specifically, he wanted mine to be um, really personal about, mm. you know, because if, you, if you're hitting, if you're trying to explain to people, if you're trying to say, like, this is why movies are great. You know, like you have a lot of different ways you can do that. But one of the number one ways is really just to try to capture, you know, how people can live in movies and how they can change your, your life and how you can have an emotional response to them. Something that I've always had my whole life from being a kid all through my teenagers has just been to connect with and live in movies and movie theaters. It's just been a huge part of my life. And to be you know, one of the one of the ways that I've, you know, I've used my voice online is to write passionately about movies and filmmakers, you know, and I, I have found over the years that people that that is contagious. People love mm -hmm. to hear that, you know, when they hear somebody love a movie, they, they feel caught up in it, too, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it, it you know, while it, I admire Jaws. It doesn't necessarily resonate with me the, 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 in the same way that it did with you, but the, the, the experience is very similar to one that I had, and mine was E.T., I would say. No. So it's just, just a few years later. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, um, that, when, that line in the thing when I say we scammed our way into a sneak preview of E.T., that literally happened. I was a teenager with my sister, and we went to see E.T. before anybody had seen it, before anybody knew mm -hmm. it. All we knew was that Steven Spielberg made it, Nobody even barely knew what E.T. stood for. We were just like, wait, extraterrestrial? Like nobody really knew what it was because they had kept it so under wraps. This would have been a whole story unto itself. But I will never forget watching E.T., not knowing anything about it, and never have before have I seen an entire audience leap to their feet at the end like they did in that movie. Oh, yeah. you know, standing ovation. We were sobbing. The thought of like, oh my God, E.T. wakes back up. <laughs> like this. Yeah. So, so, you know, he didn't do us wrong. That's Spielberg. And he created one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. So I have a very fond memory of E.T. as well. Yeah. Well, my, uh, the day, I remember so vividly the day that I was going to see it. It was a set, it was a Sunday afternoon. My dad was a at the time was a farmer, and so Sunday afternoons were kind of his time to take me to movies and do things because he wasn't. That was sort of when he took off, and but we were late 
because we were always late to movies. I never saw trailers because we were late to everything. Oh. And uh, we came in there and it had already started showing and um, E.T. was lost in the forest. And I was eight, I guess, and, but I was still old enough to be pissed that we were late. And so I just started screaming and crying when I saw E.T. was lost in the forest. <laughs> and I would scream like when uh, when they find him in the closet, I think it is, or uh, Gertie, when she, Gertie screams, I, I jumped and screamed. And Aww. and then I scream and cry at the end. I got out of there. My dad says, I may never take you to a movie again. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler, he did. But uh, I'm sure he did. Story. But but, yeah. you know, to be fair, that is a, that movie is a tearjerker. I mean, it, is. it really oh, is. We still cry watching it to this day. No, it is. You can't not watch it. That's one of the reasons, actually, that I don't watch it as much as Jaws, because I I know it's going to take me to that place and I don't always want to go there, you know. Right. I have the same experience with AI, which is um, it's that last five minutes of the AI oh, that uh, like wrecks me to the core. <laughs> no, it's too much. I can't. I can't go back there to that. <laughs> I love so, that movie, but I it's too painful. It is too painful, and that and uh, the the way that he uses the childhood imag- imagery um, to express a, a childhood that will never be. Oh, I know. You know the Teddy alone. I mean, Teddy with that broken voice box is just, Oh my God. God. I'm starting to tear up right now. Okay. So you've seen, (laughs) um, you've obviously seen jaws dozens of times, if not a hundred times by now. Um, when you were looking at and creating and working through the process of creating summer of the shark, did your perspective on jaws change at all? Or was it still the same movie that you remember? Um, well, you know, I, I, the thing about Jaws that, that is so remarkable, I think, even now, is when I sit down to watch that war essay, you know, all it makes me want to do is put Jaws on, you know, because mm-hmm. I've seen it. It's it's probably the one movie that I'll never get sick of. Every movie that I've seen, like, well, I would say that, probably th- four movies that I can never get sick of, and that's that's uh, Jaws, The Shining, Social Network, and Psycho. No Country. Oh, and No Country. Yeah, and okay, five, no country, and Psycho. <laughs> and what was Psycho? Okay, Psycho, yep. and you know the birds in Vertigo are probably up there too. You know, like I, I'm almost all of David Fincher's movies. You know, the thing is, is that Hitchcock. You know, by directors, there are some that I can just watch over and over and over again. But there are some movies where, like, like Silence of the Lambs, I saw that so many times. Like, I'm tapped out. I cannot watch that movie again because I just know it too well. You know, it's like listening to the Beatles. Like, I know the Beatles too well. And, and by now, it's like, it's not as exciting to listen to them anymore. I know, sacrilege. But <laughs> because, you know, they're so familiar. But um, but with Jaws, I think the only thing that I really noticed that, that I didn't know from before, because, you know, again, like, I have seen it so many times, probably thousands by now, is um, is I did, because we, we talk about the, the way that the shark looks and, and wondering how it would play today. I have noticed recently as watching it that, you know, really just how fake the shark really does look. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like for younger audiences, they might feel a little like Emperor's New Clothes-ish about it because they're kind of like, well, why are people like into this when it looks so fake? But, you know, we didn't think that back then, obviously. And, and I don't watch it now going, oh, my God, the shark's so fake. But I do I do watch it and notice it. You know, I do say, oh, right. yeah, yeah, that last scene where he's on the boat eating Quint. Like, and the other thing I notice is that you know, obviously something we didn't think about back then, um, is that, you know, the couple of different things that Jaws did, which was it did, it didn't, it didn't help sharks. You know, it, it, 
it hurt sharks in the ocean. You know, they, they did get killed a lot more and, and they did, they did get dehumanized and, you know, bad things happened to them because of the movie. And, um, also, uh, the sharks don't behave like that. And so the thing about Jaws, the best way to look at it is that it's it's kind of a supernatural horror movie because obviously it's it's sort of like the shark is like Christine the car, you know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't sharks don't do that. They don't they don't go after you like that for so long and attack you one by one. They just go away. You know, they eat, take a bite and then they fl- they swim away, you know. So those are the two observations that I make about this movie now that I didn't when I was younger. So <clears throat> you've done Obviously, the first season of War, and you've talked about Jaws through Summer of the Shark. You know, Netflix hasn't greenlit a, a second season yet, but if there were to be a second season and you were to pick another single film, what, what, what is something that, would, that you would like to write about? Well, we do have, we have pitched ideas maybe for, for season two if there is a season two. Um, and I mean, I have so many movies that I would like to do. I have so many pitches that, that I would, I would send their way, you know, um, one of them is, yeah, no, exactly. I would love to do Fincher films, by the way, I would love to do one about, um, you know, a woman trapped in sort of a big construct like panic room, alien and dead calm. And Mm -hmm. like, look at these three movies you know, they're all, they're all three kind of similar and they're all three, my sort of my favorite movies. And, and, and they have, I always wanted to write something about that. I also wanted to write about 1985 and Top Gun and Blue Velvet in the same year, <laughs> like what that was like to grow up in the eighties. And, um, so we'll see what happens. Well, I anxiously await the next uh, episode or the next uh, season. Well, thank you for interviewing me and for taking the time. I really appreciate it. That's a very no, nice thing was, to do. This was, this was a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.